Well, thank you, Zach and the worship team for leading us this morning, and I'm so thankful that we can sing together and celebrate the amazing grace of God, and uh, just thinking through the texts that we sang together and read together and prayed together, it's been a good morning already. If you're visiting with us this morning, I want to welcome you. I'm so thankful that you came, and this is a special day for you, and it's a special day for me because this is your first Sunday here, and this is my first Sunday as the official senior pastor of Palmetto Baptist Church. So we get to come together, and I know there are three or four of you that I've already met. So thankful that you're here. I hope that you found a warm welcome from our family, and trust that the Lord will bless your heart as you're here with us this morning. And I want to thank you again for the wonderful way in which you have so faithfully given over the last week. Even as I saw the giving report this morning, I just really in my own heart thank the Lord for the faithfulness that he has given to our church and he has by his grace enabled you to be a part of. And I hope that we never take that for granted because what we give back to the Lord is simply just a reflection of what he has given to us and the gratitude that we have for that. I do want to ask you to pray for Ron and Jenny Smith today. I had a lovely conversation with them this week, and they continue to need our prayers as they uh, work through the, the plan that God has for their life that has taken them through a very dark valley. Those of you that have journeyed through uh, the trail of cancer, you understand that. You understand kind of what they're going through and all of the things that they're trying to navigate so I know that they would appreciate your prayers and any cards or emails that you want to send to them. Uh, you can reach out to one of the pastors and we'll make sure we get it to you. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> I made Jason two promises uh, the last time that we talked. And one of those promises was that I would finish the book of Ephesians, the series that he began several months ago, actually many months ago with you. I think we've been out of this book for almost four months. And so that was not a hard promise to fulfill. I love the book of Ephesians. Probably of all the books in the New Testament that God has used to shape my thinking and to impact my living, the book of Ephesians has to rank among the top. And I'm so excited about the opportunity that, that I have to jump on the bus with you and, uh, and continue the tour through the book of Ephesians that uh, Pastor Jason started and that I get to complete. The other promise is a little harder because it has to do with the actual preaching itself. Jason had a very unique preaching style. He would divide the sermon into how many parts? Two. He would preach a little while and that would exhaust him. And then he had to go sit down and rest and pray and get revived and come back and do the second half. No, that's not why he did it. But for whatever reason, he did the two-part series, which you, you should know as a congregation is a little bit unique. I mean, it is a little bit unique. And it's not a model that I'm very used to. So the biggest question, or one of the biggest questions I've been asked as, as I've gotten to know you and you're starting to get to know me is, hey, are you going to do the two-part thing? And the answer is, I don't know. Because I've never done the two-part thing before. It's new. It's scary to me. And, and I know that many of you like that. 
And some of you are ambivalent about that. So I did promise Jason that I would try and see how it went. Are you up for that? But I'm not going to do it today. <laughs> that was such a cop-out, wasn't it? I'm just not going to. I'm not bold enough to do it today. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my normal thing, my one-part thing that like goes for a while. And then in August, you see, that's a long time. No, no, I need a long time to kind of get enough boldness to do this. Um, I'm going to try the two-part thing for a couple of Sundays to see how it goes. No promises, but that's the plan, all right? So today, we're going to go back to the book of Ephesians, and here's, here's how I want to kind of gear us up for what's happening. I want to do an overview of Ephesians today so that we kind of get back into the book, we kind of get our bearings as we start to head into the last part of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. Now, next Sunday is Father's Day. It's an important day because we celebrate a very, very important component that God designed into human relationships and particularly into the family. We celebrate the fact that God designed the world in a way that every one of us has a dad. And the Apostle Paul, actually in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, had some important things to say to the dads who were living in the city of Ephesus when he wrote the book. So we're going to jump ahead in the series, and we're going to go right to that section in chapter 6 where the Apostle Paul speaks to the dads at Ephesus, and we're going to listen into that conversation, and then we're going to try to bring that conversation out of Ephesus and into our own lives uh, as families, as, uh, as children, as wives, as we celebrate the fact that God has designed the world in such a way that every one of us has a dad. And so that's the plan for this week and next week. All right, so here's, here's what I'd like to do as we jump back into the book of Ephesians. I want you to think about the fact that for many, many months now, you have been on a tour and you've had a guide that has been walking you through the book. Now, I love tours. I, for many years, led study tours to the Holy Land, and we had uh, many, many different guides, and all of the guides were different. And I would go back to the same places every year. I did, I think I've been over to Israel about 14 times now. And every year we go, we go basically to the same places. Maybe we'll add, add a place here or there. <clears throat> How many of you, by the way, have been to Israel? Can I see your hands if you've been to Israel? All right. Now, you do know that as a Christian, you're going to be in Israel one day, right? Everybody's going to be in Israel. So I would highly recommend that you go early and see and spy out the land because you may want to be familiar with where you're going to spend a thousand years at one point in your in your life. So I, I love going over there. Beth and I have gone many times. I've taken my kids. I, I really highly recommend that. And every time we go, we get on a bus and some guy, a guide, gets up and takes us on the tour. And every guide is different. Well, you've had a guide leading you through your tour and now you have a new guide. And I'm not going to say a whole lot different than what Pastor Jason said about the book of Ephesians, because we're dealing with the same set of texts, and we're dealing with the same set of facts. But I may see things differently. So what I'd like to do today, before we get back on the bus and fire up the engine and start making our way 
through chapter 5, the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6, is I want to do an overview so that you get used to my, uh, my approach to the book of Ephesians. Can we do that together? So here's what we're going to do. When we come to the book of Ephesians, we know some things. We've observed some things. You've been reading this book most of your life as a believer. I, I would be hard-pressed to believe that most of you in this room who've been believers for any length of time have not interacted or at least read the book of Ephesians once or twice in your Christian life. And you've been listening for many, many months now to Pastor Jason open up the book. And so let me tell you what you've learned, or at least what you should see as you kind of look at this book. The book divides itself nicely into two parts. So the first half of the book ends at the end of chapter 3, and the first part, or the second half of the book, begins in chapter 4. So think of chapter 3 at the end and the beginning of chapter 4 as the hinge on which the book turns. So you've got the first half of the book and the second half of the book. The first half of the book, the first three chapters of the book, contain a lot of information. In fact, when you read that carefully, you'll discover something interesting. There are almost no commands in the first three chapters. It's like the Apostle Paul wants to front load your thinking with some important information that God is going to reveal. So everything in the first three chapters is information about something that God wants you to know. When you get to chapter 4 and you start reading verse 1, by the time you get to the end of chapter 6, almost in every paragraph, there are multiple instructions about how you should act, what you should do, or how you should respond to all of the information that Paul has given you in the first three chapters. So that's a real handy way of kind of looking at the book. The front half of the book is inspired information that God wants you to know so that by the time you get to chapters 4, 5, and 6, you now have inspired instruction that should direct how you behave based on what you believe. You're supposed to believe the information and you are supposed to behave according to the instruction. Does that make sense? So we've got information in the first half and we've got instruction in the second half. You say, well, why in the world would the Apostle Paul do that? And the answer is that generally speaking, when you read the Apostle Paul in almost every one of his epistles, he is going to front load what he has to say with information that you need to know or that you need to believe so that that then becomes the ground upon which behavior is built. Our behavior rises up out of what we believe. And that's true, not just in life, but that's really true in our spiritual lives. And so Paul has some things that he wants you to believe, he wants you to know, and then he has some instructions that he wants you to carry out. And those two things make up the content of the book of Ephesians. Now here's another way of looking at the book of Ephesians. These four chap or these six chapters rather set forth four big ideas. And so I want you to just take your Bible and let's look at the four big ideas this morning because if we can grab the four ideas in our thinking, 
then I think we'll have the book at least in our head so that we can jump back into chapter 5 and pick up where we're, uh, where we're headed and where Paul wants us to go. So here's the first big idea. Big idea number one is that the book of Ephesians expresses a divine purpose. God is up to something and he wants you to know what that is. So the first half of the book of Ephesians is telling you what God is doing. And the summary statement of that is in chapter 3, verse 21. By the time God is done with the thing that he is doing, here's what everything in the universe should be doing. It should be glorifying him. And you can see that in verse 21. To him, that's God the Father, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. Amen. So let's look at that purpose out of that verse, and we'll kind of come back to some of the passages in in chapters 1 and 2 to kind of pull some of that out together. This purpose that God is about, this divine purpose that he is expressing, when Paul writes about it, he wants you to know that this is about something that God the Father is doing. So Ephesians is, is a very unusual book in this way. It's one of the only New Testament books, and it's one of the only Pauline letters that, that actually puts what God the Father is doing as front and center. We have a lot of books that tell us what God the Son is doing. We have books that talk to us about the Spirit's ministry. But this is the one place in our New Testament outside of the book of Revelation where we discover what God the Father is doing. So one of the ways that you can think about the book of Ephesians, it is a book about what God the Father is doing. And whatever is doing, whatever he is doing, it is going to result in something. And what it is going to result in is the praise of his glorious grace. One of the ways that Paul tells you about this is in chapter 1 when he lays out a three-part hymn. Look back to chapter 1 and you'll spot it right away. You can see the hymn. It begins in verse 3 and it goes all the way down to verse 5. And there are three stanzas. If you think about a hymn, there are three stanzas to this hymn and every stanza is about a different member of the Godhead. So stanza number 1 is in verse 3, and it goes to the middle or to the end of verse 6. And that stanza is about something that God the Father is doing. And then you'll notice this little phrase at the beginning of verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then you start the second stanza. And what you see is that there is someone that God describes as the beloved at the end of verse 6. And in verse 7, that second stanza is all about what this member of the Godhead is doing. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the time you get to that end of that stanza, you find there is a a second refrain. And you can see that at the end of verse 12, to the praise of His glory. And then the third and the final stanza begins in verse 13. Where we, we are and goes all the way to the end, where we read about a ministry that the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, has. And you can see at the end of that is to the praise of His glory. So, this purpose that Paul's talking about, 
is something that God the Father is doing, and whatever it is that He is doing, He is doing it for the praise of His glory. You see that? So that's information that Paul is giving us. Whatever God the Father is doing for the grace or for the glory of His grace or for the praise of His grace, He is doing it somewhere. There's, there's a place where God intends for all of this uh, praise to come, and, and it's called the heavenlies. And that's a word that Paul uses a lot in this book. Let me give you a couple of places where you can see it right away. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Remember, whatever God the Father is doing for the praise of His glory, He is doing and He is doing it somewhere. So in verse 7 of chapter 2, whatever God the Father is doing, He is doing it so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So there is a time when all of this is going to be celebrated. And in chapter 3, verse 10, you can see this again. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So we need to stop for just a second and make sure we understand what Paul is talking about when he talks about this place called the heavenlies. Because when you and I think about heaven, here's what we typically think. We think about heaven as a place far away from here where we go when we what? When we die. So heaven is a place far away from here and we go there when we die and when we get there, we will be with who? We'll be with God, we will be with Christ, we will be with the saints. So when we think about heaven, heaven has a wonderful appeal to it, but it has very little practical purpose in our daily life, other than that's the place we want to go, and we want to send treasures ahead, and, and we certainly want to go there because of the alternative. But, and that's typically how Christians think about heaven. That isn't how Paul is using the idea of the heavenlies. He's using that term to describe a realm. So think about a realm instead of a space. Don't think geography, think about a realm. And and throughout the scriptures, Paul is going to talk about two realms. There is the realm that you and I live in, the earthly realm, and there's another realm that exists right alongside it, And that realm is the the heavenly realm. It's the realm where God and all of His created beings exist, and it is where His purposes are carried out. And these two realms are not necessarily the same, but they're not necessarily separated by immense geographical differences. If God would open your eyes and enable them to see what He can see, you would see this realm, and it would shock you, it would stun you, it would amaze you. When when your eye, my eye, does not have the capacity to see certain things. It's not built to see certain things. 
but there are human instruments that have been developed that when I put them to my eye, I can actually see things that my, my human eye by itself cannot see. I had no idea what lived in a cell or in a blood cell. But you put your eye to a microscope and all of a sudden what is that little drop of blood on a slide is teeming with life that you could not see with your unaided eye. Well, the scriptures and the Spirit of God illuminating you through those scriptures are designed to help your spiritual eye see things that your human eye cannot see. And so there are things in this realm that you and I live in. We are part of two realms. We live in this earthly realm and we live in this heavenly realm and we have a very big stake in what happens here. And all of this praise that comes out of what God the Father is doing is happening in that realm. Because in the other realm, there is no praise other than the praise we give Him. And so there is this place where all of this is taking place. And then there is a time that God wants all of this praise to happen, both now in this age as well as in the age to come. And you can see that as we looked at that text in verse 21 of chapter 3. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. So God is up to something. He is doing it for the praise of His glory. He's doing it in a realm that is every bit as real as the physical realm that you and I exist in today. And He is doing it now and in the age to come. And He is doing everything that He is accomplishing through a group of people that He has called together and given to His Son. Everything that is going on in the book that God the Father is up to is being done through this community of people that have been gathered together and given to His Son so that His Son can lead and be their head. And you can see that again in verse 21 of chapter 3. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So that's big idea number one. There is a divine purpose that the Apostle Paul is laying out in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And it is something that God the Father is doing. He is doing it for the praise of His glory. That praise is going to be given in a realm that you and I live in, a spiritual realm that Paul calls the heavenlies. Whatever is going on in that realm is going to be accomplished by a group of people who have been called together by God and given to Jesus as their head. And so we now need to ask the next question, and that is, so what is this thing that God is doing that involves the church, that involves Jesus, and that involves the praise of His glory. What is this big thing that God is doing? So there's a divine purpose expressed, but there is a divine plan explained. Paul says, listen, 
when you get this plan, it is going to amaze you. In fact, he starts off this way in verse 1, chapter 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just because he's blessed us with every blessing that is available by the Spirit, and those blessings are yours right now in this realm that we're talking about. It's not just because of what God has done for you. It is because of what God is doing in the universe that he deserves to be eulogized or to be blessed. So what is it that God is doing? And you can see the answer to that in the middle of this hymn in chapter 1, beginning in verse 9 and going all the way through verse 10. God is making known a plan to us. And he uses the word mystery, right? So think about mystery. How many of you like to read mystery books? I love reading mystery books. Man, I, you know, if I just want to just veg, one of the things I like to do is I like to get a good mystery book and I like to read the mystery. But I have a way to read it. I have a stress-free way of reading a mystery book. I always go to the end and read the last chapter. Because at the last chapter, you find out everything that's going on, right? So now you can go back to the beginning and, and you know what's going on. And you don't have to stress out that you're going to go down a rabbit trail. Like, the, you know, the writer will try to lead you down. Like, nah, I'm not going there because I know what you're doing. It's a wonderful way to read a mystery book, right? So when you see this word mystery in Ephesians, that's typically what we think, but that's not how Paul uses the word. A mystery, the way I'm using the word, is a riddle. And if you can just get enough facts together, you can solve the riddle. But think about it this way. If a mystery is a riddle, if you just get enough facts together, you can solve the riddle. But what if it's this? What if the mystery isn't a riddle? What if it's a secret? Now that's different. There are some people who stink at keeping secrets. In fact, if you have something you want the world to know, you go to that person and you tell them, I'm going to tell you a secret. It's a fail-safe way of getting the word out, right? But that's not the way God keeps secrets. When God has a secret, nobody is going to discover that secret until he does what? Until he reveals it. So the Apostle Paul is telling you that this divine plan that he's about to explain to you is a divine secret that God has been keeping and he is now revealing it. And it, it, is, it is a stunning revelation. So what is this secret that God is doing? It, it has Christ at its center. Whatever the secret is, God the Father has designed it but God the Son is going to accomplish it. And you can see that because it's in the second stanza of that hymn, and the, and the person that is the focus of that stanza is Christ. Look at verse 7. In Him, that's Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. So whatever this plan is that God is revealing, it has Christ 
at its center. So what is it that God the Father is going to do through Christ? And it's in verse 9. He is making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, and here it is, as a plan for the fullness of time. Whatever He's doing, it is, it is carefully designed, and there is a particular time when He is going to make all of this happen. When the time is ready, when the time is right. And so what is He going to do when the time is right? He is going to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, that's the plan? Yeah. So, I mean, like you were building it up to like this massive thing. and all He's like, He's just going to unite everything. And Jesus, God, we, we kind of know that. Well, let me, let me maybe dig a little deeper with you. You see that word unite there? If you could read that word the way Paul wrote that word, in the original language that he wrote that word, it would have another little part to it. It would have a little preposition on the front end of it, and that preposition would be the word re. So it would be the idea of regather or reunite. God the Father is going to reunite, He is going to regather, He is going to recalibrate everything. And He is going to bring it under Christ. Now, the word reunite means that there was a time when something was what? United, and then something happened, and it got divided. Or it got messed up, and now it has to be what? Regathered, reunited. So here's my question. When was the last time on earth that everything was in its proper place under God? When was the last time in your Bible that God looked down on what is on this earth, on His creation, and He said, now that is good? When was the last time? Genesis what? Genesis 1 and 2, right? And then something happened. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? Sin. So what Paul is saying is this, that God has been working out a plan that He is now revealing where He is going to take everything that has been broken and bent and twisted and marred, and He is going to regather it, He is going to reunite it, He is going to bring it all in its proper place under Him, and He is going to do it through His Son, through the ministry of His Son. Now, when was the last time everything in the realm that Paul has called the heavenlies, when was the last time everything in that realm was properly related to God. And that was before the fall of who? If the earthly realm wasn't, hasn't been united properly to God since the fall of Adam, when was the last time in the heavenly realm everything was properly united to God? And the answer to that is before the fall of who? Satan. This is immense. 
I mean, we went from a little tiny dot in the solar system of God's universe to the entire cosmos. God is doing so much more than just fixing something that went wrong on a planet in the backwater of his universe. He is actually doing something on a cosmic level. He is regathering and reuniting everything in heaven and on earth, in the heavenlies and in this realm on the earth, and he is doing it through the ministry and the work that his son accomplished on the cross. That is stunning. That is absolutely stunning. Now, when that plan is actually being accomplished, it is displaying three things. In order for that plan to happen, there are, there are three things about God that have to be displayed. Number one is His power. The power of God the Father has to be displayed in order for all of that to be regathered and reunited and properly arranged under God on earth and in the heavenlies. All of that is going to require an immense amount of power. And that is precisely what Paul prays you will come to know because at the end of chapter 1, there is this amazing description of God's power. Listen to how he says it in verse 19 of chapter 1. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? And it's like this. It is like the working of His great might. And here's the illustration of that. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. And it wasn't just raw power, it was actually authority because that power and that authority were given to Christ. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So there is an amazing display of power. I want you to maybe think about how we could understand that. Think about the immense power that humanity has been able to generate. I mean, we have immense capacity to do things. We, we have the capacity to, to design cities and build buildings and, and vehicles. I mean, there's just an immense capacity of power. Human power has actually figured out a way to take a piece of metal and shape it in such a way that you can take a couple of hundred people and put it inside and then put a couple of thousand pounds of luggage along with them and catapult that 30,000 feet into the atmosphere and keep it there and move it from point A to point B. That's an immense amount of power. We've even been able to do that beyond 30,000 feet, we've been able to actually take people, put them in that kind of a, a vehicle, and catapult that all the way to the moon and beyond. But think about what happens the minute the engines that produce all of that power fail. We've all seen horrific examples of this where all of a sudden that piece of metal, that plane, or that that uh, spaceship that was, or, or rocket was, was being catapulted, something went wrong, and it fell to the ground, and it, it just splintered into hundreds of thousands of pieces, and you couldn't even find the people who were in there. 
And investigators come and they gather all those pieces and sometimes they'll put them in a warehouse to do some forensic uh, analysis of what went wrong. And there is no power on earth that is capable of raising all of those people back to life. You just reached the limits of human capability. And that is precisely where Paul wants you to go when you start to think about the beginning of God's power. God could take all of this power and he could take a dead person that had been crucified on a cross and put in a grave and raise that person up from the dead. And not just raise him up from the dead, but lift him up into the very realms and restore him to his glory and put him on a throne at his right hand and give to him all dominion and all power and all glory. And the entire universe is watching this. And they're observing this and they are marveling at this. And it's not just that it was a once and done God the Father has been doing this through Christ and through the Spirit in every one of your life because in chapter 2, he talks about a group of people who were dead in their trespasses and sins who have been made alive. And so in order for this plan to be accomplished, God is going to have to display his power. But if he's going to do it through the church, He's going to have to display something beyond power. He's going to have to display His mercy and His grace. Because there is no possible way that people who have destroyed the unity that God created at the beginning because of sin are going to be able to stand in the presence of a holy God and do anything that brings Him glory apart from God's mercy and grace. And that's what you see in chapter 2. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then He raised us up with Him, and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace. That's stunning. This plan that God is doing in the heavenlies for his glory involves you and it involves me. And the very same thing that God the Father did with Christ, he has done with every one of you. Every August, my wife and I, for many years, have gone down to a a place in Florida where we vacation as a family. And there's a little place where I like to walk and jog when I'm there. And and along the place, uh, about a mile down the path, there is a, a, a mailbox. It's my favorite mailbox that I've ever seen. I mean, some people like mailboxes. I'm not really a big mailbox guy, but I love this mailbox. And every year I go back, I look for this mailbox. It's, it's an amazing mailbox. You say, what's wrong? What, what, is it? what is the mailbox? It's just a mailbox, but it's got a turtle on top of it. There is this massive turtle on top of the mailbox. Now, it's not live, so if you're worried about, like, animal rights, this is a dead, it's not a dead turtle, it's a fake turtle, right? So it's stuck on top of this mailbox. And you know why I love this, this mailbox? Because every time I see this mailbox, I think about, how that turtle got up there. Because turtles 
don't have the natural capacity to climb mailboxes or fence posts. So if you see a live turtle on top of a fence post or a mailbox, you immediately know something. That turtle had help. Right? Somebody put the turtle up there. The entire universe, God's created angelic hosts, have seen an amazing thing. They turned and they saw seated on the throne of heaven God the Father and right next to Him God the Son and then they looked a little further and right next to God the Son seated on a throne was you. And the last time they saw you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The last time they saw you, you were blind. The last time you saw, they saw you, you were devastated. You were ruined. You were, you were a rebel against God. The last time they saw you, you had no hope of even looking up, much less sitting there. And they want to know how you got from there to there. And the answer is God. And it was by God's power and by God's grace. So this plan that we're talking about is going to require power. It's going to display mercy and grace. But it is also going to require and display an amazing wisdom. There's got to be wisdom tied into this. And that's exactly what you see in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. God is going to display all of this power and all of this mercy and grace, this wisdom through a particular group of people, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We catching the picture? What's Ephesians about? It's about a purpose that God the Father has for the praise of His glory in all of the universe. And this plan involves His Son, Jesus Christ, and a community of people that have experienced His power, His mercy, and His wisdom because they are the first example, they are the first model of something that the entire universe is going to experience when God is done with the plan. When God is done with the plan, and everything is back in its proper place, rightly related to Him, on earth and in heaven, it is going to look like this. And if you want to know what it's going to look like, there is a community of people that have already experienced it. They are the prototype for whatever else is coming, and that community is you. It is through the church that God is going to display the multifaceted beauty of what He's going to do with the entire universe. That is why the church matters. That is why you and I matter. We are not just the recipients of God's power and God's mercy and God's grace and God's wisdom. We are the display of all of that. And so that brings us to this question, and that is this. Who is all of this being displayed to? 
Look, if you will, again at verse 10. All of this is being displayed, it is being made known to rulers and authorities in that heavenly realm. So who are these rulers and authorities? Go over to chapter 6 and you'll see at least some of them. In chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, you start reading about an enemy that is, is standing against the Lord and against all of His people. And they are described in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In this realm that we're talking about, there are immense armies of evil beings that are opposing all of the glory that God desires for Himself. And God is saying to those evil powers, I'm going to put everything right in this realm. And those powers are determined that God is not going to do that. And the way that God is displaying His ability and His intention to do all of that is to form a community of people and make them the prototype of what it's all going to look like. So that's who's watching. I mean, have you ever been driving somewhere and you're in your car and you look across and you see somebody in the next car and they don't have a clue that you're watching? You ever seen what those people do? You ever seen somebody just singing at the top of their lungs in their car? They're driving along, they're singing, you know, and they have no clue you're watching. Or they're putting on their makeup, or they're doing other things in the car that you probably shouldn't be doing in your car, and you're watching them. And then they look over, and they see that you're watching. Sometimes I like to go. And they get, you know, you, 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 you do things that you don't think you're doing and nobody's watching. Well, you know what, folks? If, if, can you imagine... If for just a moment God would open our eyes and all of these walls would just fade away and we could look into that realm and we could see what Paul is talking about and we could see what Job couldn't see in Job 1 and 2. We could see the magnitude of what is going on here and and what God is displaying. It would change a whole lot of how we think and what we do. And that brings us to the third thing. There is a disciplined practice that God expects of the community of people that are displaying His power and His mercy and His love. And and that is, is through something He calls a walk. And beginning in chapter 4, going all the way through the end of chapter 5, five different times, He's going to talk about the walk of these people that are supposed to be displaying all of this power, all of this grace and mercy, and all of this wisdom as the prototype of God's ability to make things right, to rearrange things and regather things so that everything is as it should be under Christ. So what does that walk look like? Well, in chapter 4, Verse 1, 
all the way through verse 15, he talks about that walk when you come together as a church. The word walk there isn't talking about what you do with your feet. It's talking about what, how you live your life. As a community of people, that is the illustration of God's ability to do this big plan that he's doing. God says to that group of people, I've called you, I've equipped you, and now here is what I want you to do. Now that you know what I'm up to, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk, I want you to live a certain way. And when you come together as a church, it is a walk of unity. It is a walk of harmony. The one place where there should be relational and theological unity is in the church. Because that's really what God is up to. God is actually bringing the universe into harmony. He is reuniting. He is regathering. And the one place where that unity should right now be manifest is in the church, in us. That's why when there's relational disharmony and there's relational tension, it is so devastating, not just to that local church, but to this plan. So when you come together as a church, it is a walk of relational and theological unity and harmony. But then Paul says, when you go out into the culture around you, and and, and you're now the church scattered, not just the church gathered, there's a different way to walk. You still need to be relationally unified and theologically harmonious together. But as you go out into the fallen culture around you, there is a walk, and this walk involves a radical contrast. It is a contrast in the way you think and in the way that you live. And you can see that in verse 17 all the way down to the end of chapter 4. It is a walk that actually reveals the immense love that God has for people. And you can see that in chapter 5, verse 1, or verse 2, walk in love. And then it is a walk in which you live as God's light and you reprove the darkness. How do you drive darkness out of a place? You bring light. And that is exactly what Jesus described us as. You are the lights of the world. He has scattered us throughout the world because he is reproving darkness. He is making darkness vanish as a part of this great plan. So there is this walk of unity as a church. There's a walk of contrast that involves walking in love and walking as light. And then there's a walk that should affect every one of our relationships, every aspect of every relationship that we have in our life. And it is a walk that, that is, is governed by the wisdom the Spirit gives. And, and, and it's basically a walk that, that Paul says is submissive. It's, it's rightly related to all of the authorities in our lives. And so this, this walk is going to look a certain way for husbands. It's going to look a certain way for wives. It's going to look a certain way for children. It's going to look a certain way for parents. It's going to look a certain way for masters. And it's going to look a certain way for servants. And Paul says, when you take this seriously, remember back in chapter 2, verse 10, there are good works that were created by God for you to walk in. These are the works. These are the walk works that God the Father created. There's a walk of unity in the church. There's a walk of contrast in the culture. 
There's the walk of light, there's the walk of love, and then there's the walk in relationships that are rightly related to each other. So when your marriage as a husband and wife, when you're not rightly related, you're doing damage to this big picture God is presenting to the universe. As a son or daughter, when you are not rightly related to your mom or dad, or dads and moms, when you're not rightly related to your son or daughter, or when you're not rightly related to your employer or to your, your, your workers, there is, there is bigger impact than just that tiny moment. There is this huge thing that God is doing. And that brings us to the final thing this morning. There's a divine purpose. There's a plan. There's a practice that's expected, this walk. But there is a devastating problem. And the problem is this. There is an enemy that is determined to make sure you don't walk that way. There is an enemy that is coming against you and he's coming against you daily. He's coming against you hourly. He's coming at you personally. He has targeted strategies by which he has tumbled down some of the most amazing of God's servants. This enemy actually tumbled our first parents, Adam and Eve. This enemy was able to bag somebody like Moses. This enemy was able to actually almost destroy the greatest king outside of Jesus Christ that Israel would ever have, a man named David. So you have a very powerful enemy, and he has a host, an army. That's the idea behind the word host. An army of wicked beings at his disposal, and they have one objective, and that is to make sure that you don't walk worthy. They are, going to, they are going to stand against you and knock you off the ground that God has given you. And they are very powerful, and they are very... Paul says it this way, we do not war against human ingenuity. This isn't a flesh and blood type war. This is a spiritual war of amazing proportions. So what hope do we have? What hope is there? And Paul's answer is this. God has given to you a stunning armor. And when he gives it to you, you get all of it. You aren't going to miss any of the pieces. It will all work. And some of that armor is defensive, and some of that armor is weapons that you're to use in the conflict. And when you put that armor on, and when you use that armor, here's what Paul said, you will stand. You will stand. So the implication is, if I'm not standing, or if I got knocked off my worthy walk, it wasn't because there was a problem with the armor. The problem was I either didn't wear it properly or I didn't utilize the weapons that it provided. So this is why Ephesians matters. This is why it matters. So here's how I want to end. What are we supposed to do with this book now? I mean, this, this, we've taken this big tour, you know, it was a sort of overview, and we saw this purpose and this plan and this practice that God expects of us and this enemy that's coming against us. What are we supposed to do with this? And here's what I want to say to you. I want to give you four things that I want you to think about 
and you take home with you. All right? Here's the first one. Embrace God's purposes for His glory. You know, when I, when I, read, I read the book of Ephesians this morning, I read the whole thing. It took me about 30 minutes. And you know what I came away thinking? This is not about me. This is not about me. Because so much of life as I live it is about me. I got stuff I got to get done. I got this mess over here I got to work on. I got this problem. And, and so much of my life is spent trying to get God on board with my purposes. And then you read a book of Ephesians, a book like Ephesians, and you see this immense thing that God is doing, and you're like, oh my word, this isn't about me at all. This isn't about me. I am not the center of this. I have a part in this, but this isn't about me. God is doing so much bigger purposes than my little purposes. So so application number one off of a trip like this is, God I want to embrace your big purpose. I want to embrace your purposes. So that's application number one. Application number two, engage in the plan. Engage in the plan. You say, well, the plan is is for God to reunite all things in Christ. So, So engage in that plan by walking worthy. Preserve the unity in the church. Walk in contrasting ways to the pagan culture around you. Live distinctly Christian lives in every area of your life. We're going to talk about what that looks like over the next weeks in our relationships. Preserve and present the love of God, the amazing love that God has That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Engage in the presentation of this plan for God's glory. So embrace God's purposes, engage in in God's plan, and fight for God's priorities. Fight for God's priorities. You have an enemy... And he is going to come at you with everything he has so that your priorities will overshadow anything that God wants to do. What you want at the moment, what you think will make you happy, what you think you need will become so big to you that you are willing to ignore things that God has said or disobey things that God has said in order to get the thing that you think you need right then at the moment. And a book like Ephesians says, fight. When that starts to come up in your thinking and it starts to come up in your heart, you need to fight for God's priorities. So embrace God's purposes, engage in God's plans, and fight for God's priorities. And a very practical way for you and I to do that is this. Be reconciled to God and be reconciled to others. Because that's the plan, isn't it? Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. God is going to reunite everything. So if God is going to reunite everything, and you and I are supposed to be the model of that, are you rightly related and united to God in your life right now? 
And, and, and you know if you are or you aren't, right? I mean, it's, it's not like God hides that. It's, it's you know in your heart if you are or if you're not. And if you're not, then, then just go to the Lord and say, God, I, 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 I'm sorry. I repent. I, I, I want to be a part of what you're doing. And I want to be reconciled to you. And sometimes that reconciliation has to go beyond you and God. Sometimes it needs to extend to other people. And you know, it, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, this week, I became aware of, of an individual. And, and you know, God, God began working in my heart. Because here, here I am talking to you about this great plan, but, but there's this relationship. And you know what you do at a time like that? You're like, well, I don't know. That's awkward. That's awkward. That, that's, that's just difficult. What do I say? Like, do I need to say I'm sorry? Do I have to say the I'm sorry word? And, and you know, I'm going to tell you something. I, if you've ever had to do that, it is excruciatingly hard. And you know why it's hard? P-R-I-D-E. It is the master weapon that Satan uses to destroy us. That's why all through the New Testament you have statements like, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So I want to end this way. I'd like to ask you all just to bow your heads. We're not usually going to take this long to work our way through a text. We just had a lot to cover as we did our flyover of Ephesians. But I, I want to be very sensitive to the Spirit of God in your life and in my life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never thought about God's big plan. And, and honestly, the Spirit of God is helping you to see that, that your life has been about getting God to do your little plan when He's been trying to get you to engage and embrace and participate in his big plan. And maybe what you need to do this morning is just tell God that. Say, God, you know, I, I've, I've just, I've mixed it up. I've, I've got to reverse that. Maybe you're here this morning and the Spirit of God is saying to you, you know, there are, there are people in your life that you need to be reconciled with. Would you say to the Lord, Lord, I'm having a hard time with this. But if your spirit will give me the grace and the opportunity, I will take the first step and trust you to supply the strength for the rest. Just, just tell the Lord that. And maybe you're here this morning and you've come to realize, you know, actually, my biggest problem is that I'm not reconciled to God. I'm still not a believer. Not the kind that Paul talked about. And as I've been coming to church over the last couple of months, or as I've been listening to the Word, God has been awakening me, and I'm beginning to realize that I'm still in my sin. But God is drawing me, and this morning I need to be 
redeemed. I, I need to be saved. I, I need a real relationship that begins with Jesus Christ forgiving me of my sin, and I want that this morning. There isn't any magic about it. You just come to God, and God helps you to see that, and you say to the Lord, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I can't do a thing about that other than come to you and ask you to forgive me. And I want that forgiveness. I want to belong to you. I want to be a part of your family. And I know that begins with me repenting of my sins and asking you to forgive them. And I want to do that. And I want to do that this morning. I'm going to have the pianist play just quietly while you talk to the Lord. And then in a few minutes, Hiro is going to come. Pastor Hiro is going to come. And we'll have our benediction and be dismissed to our equip hour.